Well, as if you weren't bored enough on shelter in place and watching all of your friends' annoying posts about homemade bread, we're back with another episode of The Side Hustle, new and improved from my end because now masks are mandatory when visiting essential business. Hi, everybody. Our special guest today, we've got Eric Matievich joining us live from the wild, wild west of uh, the good old Reno, Nevada area. Eric, what is going on out in your neck of the woods in the 775, brother? Well, hey, Jimmy, thanks for having me on. Uh, not a whole lot is going on in the 775. It's, it's pretty quiet around here. Uh, I can hear a lot more birds chirping. The uh, sun's shining a little bit better than, than usual. There's no smog, no cars on the road. Um, so, and the weather's getting better. So it's time to get outside. Well, before we dive into the meat and potatoes of this, and I start asking you about how you got into the event world and whatnot and what it is that you do, let's talk about that there because there's been all these crazy posts that have been coming up both in the media as well as people on social media talking about how with people staying at home and the roads being less busy, that wildlife is starting to uh, pop out and be more plentiful, if you will. So you guys being right there in the Sierra Nevadas, um, have you seen any of that going on in your neck of the woods? Not, not exactly. I mean, we're, we're, uh, I mean, there's a fair amount of people here in Reno, um, just under 300,000, I think, but we're pretty close to the, to the wilderness. And so you always are, able to see some if you're if you're willing to drive out half hour 45 minutes and go out and be by yourself i'd say the actual wildlife that i'm seeing is uh regular folk on the trailheads and uh you know just people that you don't normally see all these trailheads and spots that you normally go to be alone is, is crowded with other folks trying to get out and, and enjoy the weather as well so it's, it's a little different well, and i, I would say that it's it's nice to be able to have I see people out with their kids doing walks and I remember doing that when I was a kid and people on their bikes and that kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm kind of hoping that, that that sticks because it, it brings a little bit more community instead of just staying in your home. So it's nice seeing people get out and uh, enjoy the weather. It's kind of wild. It's kind of turned into how it was growing up as a kid in the seventies, man. Everyone's just hanging out in the street and just running around almost like back in summertime, back in the seventies. Uh, yes. I just dated myself by saying that, um, but you were outside right with you. <laughs> playing with the neighborhood kids and then the, you know the ice cream truck would roll up and like all the parents are sitting out in the yard with a lawn chair cracking a beer like that's kind of what all this reminds me of because the same thing's going on here in texas like the streets are more alive i mean i'm seeing neighbors that i didn't even know lived like people that i know that i didn't even know lived in my area because <laughs> i see them walking mm-hmm. their dogs and their kids i'm like where do you live they're like oh seven houses down i'm like i'll be damned yeah it's pretty it's pretty cool i hope it sticks around yeah, you guys are more set up for the wildlife thing to see some cool stuff around here uh, outside of the uh, the T-Rex that has invaded my home lately and the taxidermied armadillo. I might see the occasional blue jay, but <laughs> you don't have a lot. I, yeah, I take that back. There's some coyotes that have been popping up around here. I, keep, I personally haven't seen one, but we have that next door app around here and people keep talking about the coyotes coming out and protecting their smaller pets and whatnot. So we do have some Yeah, they're going to start there. getting bold. Well, they're hungry, you know. Mm-hmm. They start seeing those little yappy lap dogs, and they're looking for a snack. So uh, basically, with this little project that we've been doing here, we've been having some guests on, and we've just been swapping some stories and telling tales about what it's like being in the event world. And I know that you've been doing this for a very, very long time, and you've got all kinds of stories ranging from the fun to the sad to the good and the bad. So uh, let's start at the beginning how in the world did you get into the event business? And was this something that you thought many, many years ago that would actually be a career path? Or did this happen for accident, on accident for you as well? 
it purely happened by accident for me. I uh, went to school at California State University, Sacramento, and I actually wanted to be a speechwriter and I wanted to work in politics. And um, I had an internship, this was in 1994, I guess, 93, 94. Uh, I had an internship with a political consulting firm that was a few blocks from the Capitol. And I was working on, you know, various copy for speeches and pamphlets and all that kind of stuff. And uh, they offered me a job when I graduated from school and I took the job. Uh, one fun fact, I got to work on Sonny Bono's first congressional campaign when he was a uh, uh, U.S. congressman from Palm Springs. And then uh, I realized that uh, when you work for a political consulting firm, your clients are your clients and their message is your message, whether you like it or not. And you're really just kind of lying to people um, and you're sitting at a desk for a long time. And I, I wanted to leave California and get out. And I had a, an aunt that was working on the Olympic movement. And there used to be an event called the U.S. Olympic Festival. And it, it happened every other non-Olympic year. So three out of four years, they would have it in different American cities. And it was in St. Louis in 1994. And I had an opportunity to do a kind of a six-week uh, it's kind of like an internship. It's an un unpaid trip. They they travel you out there, they feed you, house you, and then uh, and and then you work for the U.S. Olympic Committee. And I was uh, helping out the soccer teams, and I kind of did their housing, and the housing was all messed up when I got there, and so I was staying up late at night trying to figure out who's staying in what dorm and all that kind of stuff. And it was exhilarating. It was neat, and you got to see events happen. And I was like, this is, this is pretty exciting. And a uh, little nepotism, my aunt was working on the 95 Olympic Festival that was happening in Colorado. And she said, you know, I think that I can probably get you a job out here, uh, maybe working on the event. And I was like, I'd love to go to Colorado. So I packed up my 1971 Dodge Dart with all of my possessions. I think it was mostly filled with two big giant living room speakers for my stereo and a little bit of clothing. And I drove out to Boulder 24 hours and got a job with that and uh, working in the logistics department. Like and a, uh, 70s, late, or late 70s, early 80s sitcom right there. Packing up a car, <laughs> loading up some eight tracks, yeah. drove to Boulder. Oh, yeah. And I had a, I had a buddy who was going to see you. Um, and so I lived in Boulder, worked in Denver, and it was almost like I was still in college because both my roommates were going to school. One of them was in a fraternity. So I just <clears throat> was going to college, but actually had money in my pocket. So I was still going out and staying out late and things like that. But I had a real job job. And then, you know, that uh, was a good experience. And then like a lot of people in events is that one thing leads to the next. And uh, next thing I knew, I packed up my bags and, Went to Atlanta because I wanted to work at the uh, Olympics in Atlanta. I didn't have a job. I knew somebody that was there, crashed on their floor for a while, um, worked for some temp agencies until I, I got a job with that. And then, you know, the rest is kind of history. And I've never had a, another job really outside of working in events. And it was all by accident. And uh, I'm happy it happened. Well, speaking of Atlanta and the Olympics, then, since you were at that event, let's dive a little bit into the history books there. That was actually... For those that don't know or don't remember, that was actually, uh, there was a bombing at that Olympics there. 
uh, that yeah. actually made a movie about that just came out uh, the end of last year. Uh, how far away from from that experience were you when that all went down? I was quite a ways away. I was uh, so I worked in Atlanta for most of the year, and then I was the logistics manager for the canoe kayak slalom venue, which is actually on the uh, about 120 miles northwest of Atlanta in Tennessee, a little town called Ducktown on the Ocoee River. But our event was, uh, I believe it was a three-day event, and the bombing happened the day before our venue was supposed to open. And uh, the way they set our venue up was it was a four-lane highway, and they basically closed off two of the lanes and made the venue out of that, and then the river was alongside, and then we had some other stuff on river left. But the ATF was stationed near our logistics compound, and uh, when that happened, you know, everybody went into lockdown, and they, they had bussed 15,000 people in from Chattanooga, which was 30 miles downriver. And so we had all, all these school buses filled with people waiting to get in while, while the ATF and their crews did a little bomb sweep. And funny enough, they actually, they found some explosives, but it was left over from when they built the park, you know? So like sometimes when you, when you blast rock and things like that, there's residue. So some of the dogs freaked out and it just, it took us about two hours before we could actually let people in there. But people were just sitting in these big yellow school buses waiting to get into the venue to watch canoe kayak. But that was a pretty wild time. So when you say it was leftovers, it wasn't like actual remaining ordinance that they hadn't used to blow out the rocks like you're saying the dogs actually picked up the scent just left over in the debris in the landscape i think they if i recall correctly i mean this is a long time ago and i'm getting old but <laughs> i do believe that they found a some kind of blasting agent that was maybe a dud right so it still had all that stuff in there and so they they got rid of it and um then they do whatever they do they put the steel box on it and blow it up but uh yeah they found that one little thing, which was pretty weird. See, that's completely crazy in of itself. And for any people out there that do events, let that be a lesson to you. Do a thorough sweep of your event site once you're done. Leave it as you found it. <laughs> <laughs> it's one thing when you leave a tool behind or a bag of zip ties, but if you leave a last leftover blasting agent, that's going to leave a mark. That's for sure. Um, that's an interesting segue. Here's a funny question for you. Um, owning a company... And having all this equipment and whatnot, obviously things get lost from job site to job site. What's the craziest thing that you ever left behind slash forgot to pack up when leaving a gig? Oh, I don't know, man. I don't think, uh, I don't think there's anything we've really left behind. I, I come from a logistics background, so we, I, get, uh, I get pretty anal about making sure that we have everything. There's a, there's a phrase out there in the event world that many people know it's called 110% and that's, uh, that's, that's what you recover on the venue and take back. And if it's not yours and someone needs it, you make sure you get to them, but you, you always kind of clean up everything no matter what. And people leave stuff behind all the time. So you end up getting random coolers and, and other things, but I've never left anything. I don't think super expensive or, or bad behind. Well, you're in the minority because I've worked for plenty of people in the past and stuff does get left behind. And I've actually, back in not event days, but in my construction days, I've amassed quite a few tools in my garage that I've found that were just left behind on job sites and whatnot. Yeah, you, you do end up finding some random things. I, 
I, I did have a good kind of collection of car batteries going for a, a three-year stretch or something like that, and it had to be something that the TV guys were using to power something, and they, you know, they were treating it as a single-use thing, and you can't just leave something like that, and so that just you end up having to go and take it back somewhere. It just reminded me of a scene out of Breaking Bad where they were trying to make that giant magnet inside the box truck, and they had all those car batteries hooked up to it. And I <laughs> used some car batteries. That's all I could think of was Walter White and Jesse Pinkman in the back of a rider truck trying to make this giant magnet. Maybe I should have made a magnet. You know what? We could have been extras in that show, sir. It would have been brilliant. Would have been fun. We'd probably still be getting residuals. So you gave us the, the beginning pieces of how you got into this event world. Obviously, you've been around. You've done quite a few things. How did you end up getting to the point in your life where you decided, hey, you know what? I don't want to just do events. I want to start my own company that goes and produces these events or runs operations for these kinds of things. How did that all come to be? When did you decide, you know what? I don't want to just be a grunt in the field. I want to be, I want to be putting things together and making stuff happen. Well, I was kind of going down. Uh, there's a few people you can talk to that kind of follow that Olympic movement. Uh, we, we both have friends that have done it. I've got a close friend of mine that did it for many years and you you kind of move wherever the event goes. And I was in my 20s and early 30s, and I, I thought it was kind of cool to be moving around um, doing these events. And I, I lived in Raleigh, North Carolina, lived in Chicago. Uh, and then I was kind of getting sick of it at that point, and I, I wanted to make things stick in Denver. And I moved back home and was temping a little bit, and I'm like, I'm done with events. And I got a phone call from somebody and they said, hey, how'd you like to, we're starting a new event for ESPN. It's called the Great Outdoor Games. How'd you like to come live in Lake Placid, New York and, and get this event off the ground? And I'm like, great, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I had just convinced my brother to move out to Denver. We just signed a lease on a new house. I think I was there for a month and a half and I packed up my stuff and bailed and went to Lake Placid, New York. Um, so I worked on that event for, I think, five years. And we bounced around a lot with that event. I lived in Lake Placid for three years, moved to Reno for a year, and then I moved to Madison for a year. And fortunately for me, um, there was another person working on the Great Outdoor Games, and that was my future wife. And uh, we met working on that event, and we had been dating for a while secretly because we weren't supposed to. And we... Uh, we decided that we wanted to leave ESPN and um, just try and make it see if our relationship was going to go somewhere. And so I had had a good experience in Reno and the convention and visitors authority had offered me a job. They were really into events at the time. And I said to the guy, the, the CEO at the time, I said, well, why don't I, what if I started a company and you hired my company to do these events for you. It'd be a lot easier for you, less overhead. And I don't even know what I was thinking at the time, honestly, Jimmy, but I, I just, I wanted freedom and I didn't want to go to work for somebody right away. And he said, that sounds like a great idea. And so I had two events that I could do for him uh, to start with. And um, soon after got a phone call from Field and Stream Magazine that was doing kind of a similar great outdoor games type event that ended up being one of my longest clients. I did the event for 10 years for him. And uh, yeah, I mean, started out really small. It was just me and I would patch together some crew to do some events. And 
they just seem to kind of get bigger and bigger and you just you just kind of keep going and, and and after a while you can't imagine working for somebody else you like the freedom and the pressure of, of having your own business it's it's really satisfying and i honestly don't know if i could ever go work for anybody ever again so well i guess that's kind of a common theme when most people are faced with the reality of moving to reno they say what the hell am i doing <laughs> well we, you know, it's funny, Kate, my wife is from San Diego, and uh, and I've got this unnatural love for Colorado and the Front Range, and I wanted to go back to Colorado, and she didn't have any interest in that. I had no interest in, in going to San Diego, and Reno was going to be a temporary holding place that we would kind of figure it out, see if things were going to work, and then, you know, here we are whatever it is, 17 years later, and now it's home, and I love it here. Yeah, so I, I wasn't taking stabs at Reno. It's, I actually love the place as well. I just remember when I moved there in 2004, people were like, I was living in Huntington Beach, and people were like, wait, you're leaving the beach, and you're moving to Reno on purpose. And I was like, yeah, and, and until you go there and you experience it, people just don't understand. And, I mean, that place was never on my radar, but a buddy of mine that I used to do BMX shows with all the time, he moved there, bought a house. I went to visit one weekend, fell in love with the neighborhood in the mountains, and I bought the house across the street, and I lived there for eight years. And uh, I never thought in a million years that I would want to live there, but I, I have fond memories of the place, and I love coming back to visit. It's gorgeous. Well, sadly, the secret's out now. We're growing like crazy, and the housing market's kind of, kind of nuts. Um, so it's, you know, people, more people – they used to say, Reno, why would you go to Reno? And now people are saying, oh, I've heard some good things about it. And every time I hear that, I say, nope, it's a terrible place. You don't want to be here. Yeah, just start making up stories. Oh, you don't want to come here. It's terrible. Pollution, <laughs> tiny airport. <laughs> yep. You don't want to shovel snow. Nah, stay in California. Yep. So nowadays, uh, you are running or actually owner of States and Kingdom. So mm -hmm. let's talk about how that all came to be and how you got together with that character by the name of Tess Sewell. Sure. So uh, I had my own production company that I started when I moved to Reno, like I mentioned. And um, I don't know, a few years into it, a friend of mine, uh, I, I have known Tess for a while. We have been friends, known each other from the X Games and things like that, um, and saw each other socially. And we had an opportunity to do an event for Red Bull called New Year No Limits. And it was a partnership between Red Bull and uh, ESPN where we would do a, a live stunt to ring in the new year. And I think we did it for, for five years. And I didn't have any kind of a sportive background. I was more logistics and operations and budgets and things like that. And so I partnered with Tess who had his own production company at the time and you know he kind of handled the sports side of things and and worked with the athletes and, and all that kind of stuff because he had those relationships and then I did all the rest of the dirty work stuff permits and staffing and all that kind of stuff things that I like to do and we always enjoyed that partnership and we'd get together having drinks and we're like oh we should start a company together ha 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 and we just never got around to doing it and you know, there were some things happened with my with my business. Uh, the long-term client, uh, Field and Stream, went away. Um, 
some things changed for Tess with his business and, and we had an opportunity to do it. And we just said, why don't we just formalize this thing and, and see what happens. And we formed the company in late 2013. I think we did only two events in 2014. And then uh, it's really kind of taken off from there. And it's been a, the business has grown exponentially for us more than we could have ever done as individuals. Cause I think the two of us have, uh, two vastly different skill sets that we bring to the table that, that complement each other's quite well um, with, with the business that we run. Yeah. You guys uh, have a unique balance of coming from different parts of, uh, of the event world and whatnot. And, you know, it, it's, it's crazy. We were talking about this on another show. Uh, I think it was when we had Jane Dulamon and we were just talking about like, I mean, Angela, Jules, myself, we've done a lot of different things for a lot of different people over the years, but you guys have, such a unique style in in the way that you manage things and the way that you that you motivate people and just the way that you thank people on your crew like i was talking about this with jane the other day that it's crazy like i've done a lot of different things and people are like hey thank you and they give speeches or you go out to a big dinner at the end but just at the end of every night it's just the way that you guys come in and we all have that powwow in the trailer you know and you tell everybody like hey all right here's what we got done today and cross off the list and talk about what's got to get done the next day and whether it's a mellow day or whether it's a crap day and you know it's coming you guys just the way that you go down the line and you shake everybody's hand and look them dead in the eye and say hey thank you for your work. It, and I've never experienced anything like that anywhere else I've ever worked. And it's amazing just watching the way that you guys handle all of it, whether it's adversity, the good, the bad, the funny, like you never really see either one of you super rattled, which in turn, and I mean, Angela, Jules, you can speak to your experience on this too. You, you never see anybody else on the crew really get rattled, especially on the days when things just feel like they're never ending or it's kind of falling apart. Like it's always even keel. Well, it's it's nice of you to say that. I I think um, the philosophy that I've always had in having my business is that these event the event business is really about relationships, relationships with your clients, relationships with your vendors, and most of all, relationships with the people that do the heavy lifting for the plan that you've put together. And I've been really fortunate to. Um, be able to work with the same people over and over again and they want to come back and work for us because we I feel like we we try and put them first and take care of them and that's that's always been more important to me I, I don't know who told it to me some one day but somebody said you have to put your people first and they'll walk through walls for you and and I found that to be true and so I'm when I shake somebody's hand and thank them for the job well done it's because I truly am grateful because uh, if it was just Tess and I trying to do things and do things on our own, uh, we wouldn't be anything. Um, you know, it's the people that come and work for us and help put the plan together. The smart people that we have that come up with solutions and things like that, like we can't survive without them. So I'm, I'm truly grateful. Yeah, that's another kind of key element to it too, at least on the events that I've worked with you guys on is that it's, it's like, hey, here's the list. And just kind of send people out and trust that they will pair up or get into the little groups that, and just know that it's here's the list and everyone just kind of knows what's got to get done and just kind of leave them to their devices to sort of figure it all out, if that makes yeah. sense. Absolutely. Well, I mean, look, you don't need to micromanage people to death. If there's one little thing you're super concerned about, you can micromanage that. But you're, you're A, going to wear yourself out by micromanaging and people are going to be like, when is that guy going to leave so I can just get my job done? 
I mean, like everybody come from all walks of life have plenty of talent and there's more than one way to skin a cat. All that really matters to me is the end result and is the client happy. So I don't really care how things get done. And, you know, everybody who works on these crews has seen just as much, if not more than me on these events and, and they can come up with a way to make it work. Yeah. I mean, but some things aren't like that. Like sometimes you've, there, there's some people out there that you've got to kind of direct or sometimes you've got crews that are just kind of, they're, they're stepping over each other or they're just kind of undoing what the other group's done. And it just makes twice as much work in the long run, but it's, it's a different vibe uh, with your events because like I said, everyone just kind of gets in their little clusters and knows their strengths and knows, you know, who, who's going to work best doing what and just go and everybody's got their list. And that's like, okay, see in four hours, reconvene, or we going to lunch, come back another five, six, seven hours, come back. Let's go grab dinner. Cool. Knock it off the list. Tomorrow's a new day. Exactly. Not to mention you have some of the coolest toys in that trailer. It's not every day that I get to use a stake driver. I'm pretty impressed by that, by the way. It's a, it's a little bit of an affliction that I have and that I, I like gear. Um, and, I'm, and I usually have one piece of gear that I've bought and brought to an event, and I'm super excited about it. But sometimes it doesn't work. Uh, you know, I, I, I bought some stake pullers a couple of years ago, and I was super excited. It was going to be an easy way to pull stakes. And it was a colossal disaster. So I do have, you know, a fair amount of things that just kind of sit and don't get used ever again. But I well, like buying gear. If you've got a stake puller, then we don't get to watch Carlson get in the forklift and try to yank those things out of the ground with the tip of the forks now anymore? Uh, no, the, the stake puller didn't work. So we've got to come up with something else. Because, I mean, that was always the classic game of how close do I want to be and how far is the stake going to come to hitting me in the head? Well, you know, one of the guys on our crew built a, a stake puller that was kind of a, a welded chain um, that had like a little triangle, triangular piece of pig metal on it um, that would attach to the, to the stake. And then when it does that in, inevitable pop, when you finally pop it out of the ground, that pig metal would stop it from flying anywhere. So you could, it was actually quite safe. But I had my trailer broken into a couple of years ago and and it, it got stolen with, with a bunch of other things. So I, I haven't had Mark uh, make me another one, but I'm going to hit him up soon. Oh, uh, there's another little caveat. The unfortunate side of the event business is when your trailer full of tools gets broken into either at an event or when it's parked at your storage unit. That is, that is not a fun moment. No, it wasn't, but you know, uh, live and learn, empty your trailer, put it into uh you know, lock storage right after the event. Don't wait because you're tired. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how how much of a nightmare was that going through the insurance process? Well, believe it or not, it's not worth it sometimes. Even if you have insurance, it's not worth it to claim that. Um, we had about, I don't know, a twelve to $15,000 loss in terms of equipment. And it wasn't worth making a claim on it because like a lot of insurance companies, you make a claim, they either drop you or jack your rates so high. So you're better off just kind of absorbing that loss over a few years and slowly building your inventory back up. That's pretty sad. I mean, kind of defeats the whole purpose of paying for it, but I totally see what you're saying that the amount of, the amount of increase that you're going to spend in the long run, paying the higher rates after filing a claim over time. Yeah. It's we'll we'll be- cover that in our insurance podcast when we do our event insurance podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's a later podcast. I could, I could, I could go on for, 
I'm, I'm on that forever, and nobody wants to hear it because it's really mostly just it's, it's another a pill. That's insurance. a separate podcast <laughs> called The Premium Style Hustle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Brought to you by Allstate. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So uh, speaking of insurance and uh, that kind of fun stuff, let's. we've been asking people pretty much in all of these uh, interviews – to talk about the craziness that's going on right now around the world and what that has done, what that's done to them, how that's affecting their work and just how they're coping with all this on a personal level and what they think things are looking like moving forward on a personal and a work level after all this crazy coronavirus stuff kind of settles down. Yeah. I mean, I think there is a lot of uncertainty in the event world. It was, kind of the first thing to go away because it's groups of people gathering together and oftentimes you know events come out of a marketing budget and when times get tough or the economy takes a little bit of a dive the marketing budget gets slashed which in turn the events get slashed so i think we've seen it happen over our industry quite a bit and then on the same at the same time, you're waiting for the economy to open back up, and you want to be prepared for when that happens. So uh, there's a lot of us who have either had cancellations or delays based on the closures, but we're still looking forward to things in the fall, late summer, fall. And you kind of have to take a rolling approach to whatever you have coming up and do what you can to keep the ball rolling in hopes that the country will open back up and you can still do your work. And then you also have to think about what's, what's going to change with our events. I think one of the biggest things that, that uh, may be rolled out for us from the government, but I think it would behoove us as event managers to think about it in this way, is adding that health and safety component uh, to your event. So it's just like a recycling plan or a trash plan or a security plan. You're going to have to add in a health and safety security plan, whether that means you're taking temperatures along with tickets at the gate and infusing people entry, if that's a, a real thing, which I think it could be. Uh, having more hand-washing stations, there'll be a heightened uh, sanitary conditions component to the event that I think the regulatory agencies will look at. So if we're looking at those type of things and trying to figure out a way to make things safer for people and still be able to enjoy the, the products that we put out there, I, I think that'll be the biggest change for us. But we're really going to have to take a page from professional sports. And we've seen a lot of things kind of flying around there, how they're going to do it. Are they going to do it without people? Are, you know, there's, there's television with that. I think the events that we work on, rely on both a little bit of, of broadcast as well as the on-site experience. So once we see what the professional sports leagues are doing, once things open back up, I think uh, our type of events will take a cue from that and, and it'll develop from there. I agree. I think it's going to be taking a cue from mainstream sports. Uh, you know, a, a lot of things are going to change. Obviously I use the nine 11 comparison. You look at the changes that happened in air travel in our world after that. And 
just the entire experience as a whole going through security at the airport and what it takes to get on a plane. Uh, I think we're definitely going to be going through some sweeping changes uh, along those same kinds of lines with events moving forward. Uh, mainstream sports. I mean, like major league baseball is already talking about doing, starting their season up out in Arizona, out in the middle of nowhere. And with mainstream sports, you've got, like you said, television dollars. So there's advertising dollars there. So that can fuel that. So those guys can afford to get away with not selling tickets. I mean, obviously it's not going to be what it was when they were going, you know, full bore, but it's still a way for them to operate. Um, I was actually thinking about this with you guys the other day from as a whole for States and Kingdom, because you do, uh, you, you guys started doing esport events. So I was thinking uh, for something like that, that could conceivably continue because a lot of that's being watched online anyway. I mean, you have a group of people that are playing, you know, whatever video game event that is, and a lot of that is generated or watched online. I was thinking that for something like that, that you guys could probably be up and running pretty quickly once they start slowly integrating vents back into the everyday. Yeah, I think sadly for us anyways, with our particular situation with our esports client is that, uh, they kind of changed the format up this year and, and we're doing some kind of smaller events and building to a larger event with crowds. And uh, they had broken up into spring and fall and their, their big spring event was supposed to be happening in Moscow in early May. And they have since taken that online. And if they end up taking it online and it's successful and they see the same kind of return, as they would having an on-site event, I think it might kind of push us out of the way and, and they won't really need us to be able to do that. So I'm kind of hoping that the the online experiment doesn't work and they still want the crowds, but uh, that's planned for late fall for us. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, putting, I think there's, you know, some, some, some events that we do, like uh, possibly some stunts, Anything that's got a TV component that can put some eyeballs on there, you can do without a crowd and uh, still make them happen. But, you know, most of the things you've, you've got to have the people. Yeah, that's the tough one moving forward. And then, you know, you see stuff in the news. I saw an article the other day. Uh, it was the mayor. I think it was the mayor of Los Angeles. And he was talking about not having any sporting events, any music festivals, any sort of event whatsoever until 2021 and in my head I was like well that's a little bit extreme I mean it's April right now it could be quite painful I mean there's just there's so many unknowns out there and, you know I, I think that the, the real challenge is for the medical authorities to kind of get a handle of how we can test people test people for the antibody, test people for the coronavirus, things like that. I think we, we as a country, uh, and that goes all the way down to the, the states and the counties and the cities, we don't necessarily know who's been infected, who has the antibody. There's just a lot of unknown about it. We don't have enough data to make informed decisions, which is why I think the mayor um, is looking at it in that in that terms because you still don't know if something could break out again so we need testing and if you can get some widespread testing two million people a day then you could really get a handle of, of what your your country is faced with yeah that actually goes back to what i was 
we were talking about just a little while ago with sports starting up again. Some of the things I've heard them talk about is, all right, we'll get all the players together and we'll just test all the players and all the staff, which would be great if you're going to sequester them out in the middle of nowhere to play baseball. But at the same time, it's also a bit of a double-edged sword, I would think, because then you've got all these tests that are available for professional athletes, whereas there's regular people out there that are like, hey, wait a minute, I can't get a test. And you guys are going to give all these tests out so these guys can play baseball? Where do your priorities lie here? Because I've heard a lot of people grumbling. Just on social media, and they're like, wait a minute, I can't go get a test, and I have symptoms, but they had a test for a tiger in the New York City Zoo. <laughs> yeah, that's true. There's a lot of disinformation out there, but it, it really does seem like we, we do need more testing for the general populace to be able to figure out exactly what's happening. Well, and a bit of good news on that front, there was an article that came out here in Dallas the other day that they have now opened up testing for all essential workers. So whether you are showing symptoms or not, if you work at a grocery store, you work at a bank, a gas station, food delivery, whatever, you can now go to, we have a couple of drive-through testing centers here in the city of Dallas. You can now go there and actually get tested. So uh, it's allowing the frontline people, if you will, to go get tested if they are showing symptoms or even if they're just worried about exposure to others while they're out doing things like delivering food or, you know, working at the hardware store. So we have that going on. So that's a positive upturn around here. And we actually, I think, was it yesterday or the day before? It was yesterday. It was our first day in a while without an actual death from any of this. So it looks like it's turning a little bit here. That's great. It looks like it's getting somewhere. But I mean, you know, I remember back in January, this is beginning of February, actually, uh, there was an event, it was a skate event that was going to be the end of May in Los Angeles, and they were already canceling that. And I remember scratching my head and thinking, like, at that point in time, like, only one person in L.A. County had died. I was like, and you're going to cancel an event in late May? I had no idea. I mean, little did I know that we'd be in the situation that we're at right now. I don't think anybody did. But, oh. you know, when you when you see stuff like that article where it's saying no events until 2021, part of your brain's like, that seems extreme. And then the other part of your brain's thinking like, well, it's, it's crazy to me to think I mean, we're on four weeks. Now this is the first day of week five of shelter in place here. And I'm just amazed at how easy this has been and how fast the time has actually gone by. It's bizarre. I wish I could say the same. My, my time is dragging on. I want to get to work. I haven't been on a plane in five weeks, which is very strange for me. And, uh, you know, there's only so much, kind of housekeeping with the business that you can do and you want to kind of move forward and do some, some work work. <laughs> I agree. I'm, ready. Project. I'm ready to go back to work. I just, I've, I've literally sequestered myself in my garage and I've just been woodworking this entire time and just doing these crazy home workouts and baking bread. <laughs> nice. It's been flying by. Unintended considering you just said you haven't been on an airplane in five weeks. Uh, the last time you flew, how was that experience? I haven't flown since February 10th. I did go into the airport uh, the day that they shut down all the sports leagues for the most part. So that would have been what, March 12th. But it was a very bizarre experience in the airport for me. I didn't actually get on a plane. I was only there for 15 minutes. Uh, but what was your experience like? Because you've obviously flown more recently than I have. My last flight was on March 3rd. And I went down to LA for some meetings. And I think uh, usually... There's two or three flights a day to Los Angeles from Reno, and they're usually just super packed. And I think I had 12 people on the plane on the way down and and maybe eight or nine on the way back. It was pretty surreal. And just driving around LAX, they've got that big U-shaped terminal area, and 
it, it was you could just drive all the way around. You never even hit a light. You didn't have to stop, and it was just it was quite strange. Yeah, it's it's like a ghost town. I was supposed to fly to Milwaukee on the twelfth for a flat track race, and I hadn't heard back from the promoters. And I was just curious, thinking, all right, maybe this gets shut down. So I went in. I went through security. I went to the gate, and I asked to get put on a later flight. Uh, and then I turned around and left because I just didn't want to fly to Milwaukee, not knowing if this thing was happening or not. And then two hours later, I got a phone call and said, hey, events canceled. I'm like, well, glad I didn't get on that plane. But just the entire experience of going through security. I mean, the airport was probably about a third of what it would have normally been for that particular point in time in the day. And sure, people in masks, yeah. some people in gloves. But it was it was a weird vibe. It was It was very strange. And this was you know, again, a good solid week before shelter in place ever started here. So it was just strange, but I mean, looking back, I'm glad I didn't get on that plane. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not that those I'm are super paranoid to begin with, <laughs> but at the same time, those things are, you know, you're in a giant Petri dish at 35,000 feet with all that recycled yeah. air. So better safe than sorry, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And you're not sick. So that's great. Oh, I don't know. My neighbors would probably think differently when they see me doing the stupid stuff that I'm doing here in my yard on a daily basis. So <laughs> you see a grown man than any other day. When you see a grown man in an inflatable T-Rex outfit mowing the lawn, uh, your neighbors start to wonder if all's well. <laughs> That's classic Jimmy. That's the best 80 bucks I ever spent on Amazon. Things worth its weight in gold. Angela and Jules were like, what'd you get? I'm like, you'll see. <laughs> hey, you two have been quiet on this thing. You're supposed to chime in. You're supposed to be like my Ed McMahon. Well, hey, I do have a question for Eric. I know we do a bunch of amazing events, and I would like to know which one is your favorite and why. Uh, so one of my favorite events from having my own business or just all time? Just in general, yeah, all time. Maybe it's a single event or it's a, a series that we do or just anything. Just, I mean, it doesn't have to be your ultimate favorite, just a favorite. I really liked the New Year No Limits. I, I thought it was a really cool thing because it, it was a stunt that required a lot of preparation and practice. It had was something that maybe hadn't been done before or hadn't been done at that distance and seeing all that hard work go into preparing for it. And then I love the pressure of, of live events and the fact that you don't have a chance to do it over and you've got to do it and hit your marks and do that. So I really, I really like the new year, no limits events. And I, I don't know if I have one that, that stood out in particular for me. Mm -hmm of the ones that we did, but I really enjoyed doing those. And I wish, I wish we would do them again. I agree. That was one of my favorites too. And I, I know I complained about like having to leave right after Christmas and then being away on new year's, but then when they all stopped, it was like, Oh man, I wish we could keep doing this. Cause they were pretty amazing. It, it was sure nice making money around Christmas time. Cause usually, yeah. you know, if you're not doing snow sports events, which we don't really, uh, it's, it's a nice way to, to have a little bit of, Christmas cash. Yeah. And I, I do like the pressure of live TV, but then also, you know, we, we used to have to wait for the Chick-fil-A bowl all the time. I remember that too. So that was pretty yeah. intense. Yeah. If you take that and compare it to like when we did the great outdoor games, I love that event. It was super casual, super fun. 
cool sports, but it was made for television, so it was packaged and edited and then and then put out there. So we would do the things of trying to do a show opener where you you somebody like Jimmy is like, okay, everybody, we're getting ready to come back on. Everybody cheer, and they're like, oh, we didn't really like that one. Let's do it again. And so you do that a few times, and it kind of uh, loses its luster a little bit, even though when you see the final package, it, it looks pretty cool. But I don't ever like doing the the fake crowd cheers. Yeah. Called the crowd check. <laughs> Were you watching the outdoor games in, uh, uh, in Florida on the Disney property? So I had just left. Uh, I had left that summer before the event happened, and Cadence, my wife, had stayed on as a consultant. We were living in Reno, and I just came out to the event just to say hello and show my face and uh, to see all see the crew, and that's when the I was there when when they evacuated the venue, which was pretty pretty crazy for that hurricane. Yeah, we had a hurricane, and then we had a big gator in that um in the pit. Right. The, yeah, that was the my. Apple guys were working in the water. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that event was how I got started. So yeah, you know, seeing the gator and the hurricane really kind of turned me off. But here <laughs> yeah, I, I bet. <laughs> so that's funny. You gotta live on the edge, Jules. What did that gator ever do to you? Well, you know, I, I'm I'm from California, so don't have many opportunities to be up close and front with a gator. So listen, Jules, I'm gonna tell you right now, you've already been seen on video kissing the most dangerous animal on the continent of Africa on the nose and feeding her a two liter bottle of tea. You should not be afraid of an alligator. Yeah, but th that was many years later after the alligator. So I've put my my dues in. All right. So alligators know hippopotamuses that like fresh or hippopotami. I don't know whatever the plural of that would be. Uh, fresh uh, sweet potato and oolong tea. That's your jam. Sure. <laughs> I don't, does Eric know that story? I do now. Angela went and kissed a hippo and fed it a two liter bottle of tea when we were in South Africa. That's awesome. Yeah, it only costs five bucks. That's even more awesome. Fantastic. <laughs> Angela? The one that's muted. Not Eureka, Angela. Uh, other Angela was laughing out loud. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have anything to add? You've been very silent. I have been very silent. No, uh, I've actually enjoyed listening to uh, Eric talk. It's uh, I've learned things that I did not know about Eric, so uh, that was that was pretty interesting. I didn't know about your small but uh, political career, so that was pretty cool oh, to hear about. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know that either, so that was pretty cool. It was a disaster, actually, but it got me into doing events, so I guess it was good from that standpoint. Yeah. It, it was a good roadway, <laughs> yeah. if nothing else, right? Yep, yep. I wore a suit and tie for a couple of months. Whoa. I'm wearing a suit and tie right now because I wanted to look good for this podcast. So. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. So, let's see here. Why don't you tell us a crazy story now this can be 
something event wise along the lines of, okay, this all fell apart. We had to really scramble to make this happen. Something funny, something crazy, maybe a most memorable story of the best thing that you ever got to do, a weather story. Give us an idea of the background of the history of you in the event world. Okay. <laughs> I love it when I put people on the spot with this and they're like, hmm. Well, usually when things go wrong, you don't generally want to think about that and recount uh, what's happening. But I do have kind of a, a fun story. I don't know if you guys remember Senator Jesse Helms from the great state of North Carolina, but he was a long-term senator for North Carolina, I don't know, 30-some-odd years. He's since passed. But in 1999, I was working on the – Special Olympics World Games, and it's a it's a pretty cool event. They bring nine thousand athletes from all over the world to compete in an Olympic style event, and they 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 do it big. And I was the uh, operations manager for both opening and closing ceremonies, so it was it was pretty cool. We did opening ceremonies at Carter Finley Stadium at North Carolina State, and they were housing the athletes in Chapel Hill and and at Duke and, and also at uh, North Carolina State. So they trucked them all in. And the Olympic movement, while there, there is some money behind it, there, it's largely run by volunteers. So I had a huge volunteer crew, which is – it's a challenge. And a Angela can uh, attest to this because she probably uses a lot of volunteers at a running events. And it's, it's a mixed bag, let's say. But we uh, – we, we, we brought all the athletes in and they all sat on the floor and Stevie Wonder played and I think Sugar Ray played. It was pretty cool. But I, I did not have enough people to be able to do the job that I needed to do. And a lot of times with those type of events, you have people who don't have any experience in events. And I was only four or five years into my own career. So I had some experience, but I didn't have a ton. So I was just getting phone calls and radio calls for this, that, and the other. And we were just kind of scrambling, trying to, trying to get things done. And in the middle of the craziness, we were trying to get water down onto the stadium for the athletes because it was 100 degrees, North Carolina summer in July. And I got a call from a state trooper, and he's like, hey, this is so-and-so state trooper. Uh, I'm with Senator Helms, and Senator Helms needs a, a golf cart. So he can get in and Senator Helms was disabled. I think he was in a wheelchair, might've been a paraplegic. And I just didn't have the time to be able to do it. And I, I think I hung up on the guy two or three times. And before I actually answered his call, like he, he'd say something, I'd be like, I can't do this right now. And I'd just hang up on him. And he, he kept calling and then he finally called and I, I, I had a little lull and he said, I need, I need a golf cart right now. You're the guy, you need to bring it to me. And we just didn't have any. We had a couple of them that were broken, some flat tires, and we were, you know, busy doing other things, attending to the athletes and making sure that things were going well. And I just said, I'm sorry, sir, but I can't help you. I'm not going to be able to get you the golf cart. And, he's, and he got really kind of potty with me and he's like are you telling me that you are not going to help out senator helms and i'm like i'm sorry sir i can't help you and, I'll, and he said i need your name and number and i'm like you have my name and number and uh i i hung up on him and we had the event i don't know if senator helms got in there or how he got in there but uh i always felt a little bit bad about not being able to help him out 
but but it also felt kind of good to to be able to tell a politician no. <laughs> <laughs> the moral of the story is, it always feels good to tell a politician no, kids. <laughs> so that's that's one kind of fun crazy story. I like we could it. talk about X fighters and loading fifteen thousand people in the Glen Helen and then canceling the event. And they all had to walk back a mile and a half to their cars. That was That's fun funny, because we just talked about that with uh, we just talked about that the other day. I was asking Ange and Jules, was that we did we talk with Tommy about that, or was that with Jane? Uh, it was to Tommy Deck. I think we were talking to Tommy Deck about yeah, uh, X Fighters. Yeah, clearing out the venue and just like the angry people, <laughs> the bottles being angry. thrown. It was pretty yeah. bad. It's what happens when you pull the plug in an event in the nine oh nine, bro. Yeah. I blame that on my on my business partner who actually was the one who had to make the call. <laughs> well, I like we said the other day. What was what was so funny to me was and not necessarily funny, but I think part of the problem was was you had all of those people there and they were day drinking and there was no shade. And it was like, okay, we have to wait. So they waited and they waited and they waited. And then it was like, okay, it's go time. And the opening ceremony started and uh, the guy came out and played the national anthem with guitar. And then those two guys from Sons of Anarchy came out and gave that whole speech and the video wall element. And then all those guys came out and they're doing trains and they're backflipping and side by side. It was like, everyone's all fired up. The adrenaline's pumping. It's like, yeah, we're finally getting this done. And then they all go back in the athlete staging area. And then you hear it on the radio, like, Oh, the wind kicked up. They don't want to do it now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was so bad. You just blew up the giant hot air balloon and then just threw a javelin right through the heart of it and the whole thing deflated. People were angry. Yeah, that was I an I still under- haven't gotten over that because I haven't had a chance to do another X-Fighters. Well, if it's any consolation to you, they've been just as crazy as ever up until the point where they went away. Yeah. Look on the bright side. Even though that one stunk, at least you didn't have to deal with uh, clearing anything out of or installing anything into a coliseum that was used for a bullfight the night before and everything just reeks of bull urine. Oh, yeah. That doesn't sound good at all. No. Those are Jules' favorites, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, because they stick me right where the bullpens are. Uh Uh-huh. And that's Spain especially is always Jules' favorite staff catering. (laughs) <laughs> she's especially a fan of the oxtail soup <laughs> notice how she's not commenting <laughs> you got nothing on that Jules no wow not even a yeah. no it was the Spain event where we started the little thing for Jules that we call attitude adjustments Drake and I would make up a fake emergency and take her off site and make her go have a beer middle of the afternoon. Good stuff. Well, Look at Drake, he's my next door neighbor. What? what? Are you getting free tattoos? No, or actually, I think he just moved out. There's a there's a lady that lives a couple doors down, and her son has a school bus parked in the driveway, and they used to take it on adventures to Costa Rica, blah blah blah, and uh. The kid, there's there's always people kind of coming in and out. I think the kid, he's not even a kid. I mean, he's in his 20s. Um, 
goes on different adventures all the time and he, he's just got friends that it's, it's like a flop house for adventurers it seems and I just ran into Drake riding on his bike the other day and he's like oh yeah I'm just kind of taking care of the house while people are gone and I think he was living in the bus maybe but uh, I've invited him over for beers a couple of times but he hasn't taken me up on it yet and I we just kind of wave to each other and say hello and shoot the breeze for about five minutes but uh, Drake's I, I don't always get much out of him. Plays you know Drake. Drum. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh yeah. I love that he was living in the bus. That's so Drake. Yep. But I haven't seen him in a few days, so I think he might have. I saw him loading some, loading up his trailer, so he might have moved out. And he never came over for a beer. And I've been known to drink a beer from time to time. He's yeah. going to get a strongly worded letter from my HR department over here. <laughs> hopefully we can do an event soon and we all can have a beer together you know what Boy, wouldn't that be great yeah maybe we can get drake on one of these one day how would that wouldn't that be epic yeah, yeah i think he would be a good one i think he would be great on multiple fronts so maybe we can get your uh your business partner to jump on one of these i've hit him up about it a couple of times and he's very elusive he doesn't want to talk about it well, I spoke with him this morning and let him know that I was doing this. And I, and he said, oh, I thought I got back to Angela and said I was interested in typical test fashion. This is not a test bashing session, but he needs to get on here because he's got way more good stories than probably all of us combined. He'd be pretty, pretty good. So we got to put the pressure on him. Speaking of test fashion, did you see the salmon pants the other night on Facebook? I, I think it's odd that Tess gets dressed up for dinner at home but hey whatever works right hey you know what it's everyone's dealing with this in their own pace and i've noticed that they do these little saturday night date nights where they get dressed up and they have dinner together and they sit on the patio and i'm like you know what if that's what you're gonna do i'm over here being a dummy dressing up in an inflatable dinosaur suit but they're getting dressed up and having dinner date nights so more power to them yeah i think it's cool i mean gabby's good she's still out doing surgeries and she's got going in and out of hospitals all the time. So I'm, I imagine it's quite stressful for her. So it's probably nice to be able to do a little date night, even if it's just in your house. But I know he's been getting a ton of work done around the house. He's got all kinds of home projects going. He's got some pretty ambitious things happening. Uh, he's been sending me pictures of that and offering me to fly out there to come do some sanding and spackling and all kinds of fun stuff after this all kind of blows over. <laughs> Gee, that sounds terrific. Hey, I tell you what, if great things are going for me in the event world, I may be going back to that world. That, and that's not a joke. That might be the short-term solution for a little while is going back into some sort of construction work. Uh, I hear you. I've been, I uh, was just talking to my buddy who owns the Reno Fly Shop, and he's actually been quite busy there doing the, the whole curbside pickup, and fishing is still something that's allowed in Nevada and California. So he's still doing his business is down a little bit, but uh, he's he's still doing okay. I, I'm actually considering if this shutdown happens much longer, I might go go help him out in the shop for 20 hours a week or something like that, just to, just to have something to do and be able to talk about fishing. Yeah, it's you know with that next door app and just seeing stuff on our neighborhood Facebook page around here, like I've, I've seen people post for odd things and I've recommended certain friends that I know that do that for a living, but a couple of my friends have needed their lawns mowed and they don't have a mower and they can't afford to pay their 
usual lawn guy. So I've kind of been doing this thing where a couple people have gone and mowed their lawns and they're like, all right, what are you? And I'm like, you know what? Pay it forward. Go order some food from one of our local restaurants and just tip the driver really well or go do a random act of kindness for someone else. And it's kind of turned into this thing that helps kill the time. But at the same time, now I'm starting to be like, well, I saw this post the other day and somebody needs a fence put up or somebody needs interior painting. And now I'm thinking about like, well, if this keeps up for another couple of weeks, I might have to start actually trying to go do some of this stuff. I hear you. Just to sort of weather the storm, you know? Yep. Yep. Especially my last turn around. My last two events that I did, uh, the checks I don't think are coming anytime soon. <laughs> oh, that's not. That's not. I just sort of like, huh? Okay. And then you know, I mean, being an independent contractor, trying to figure out where you stand in this whole unemployment thing, and I mean, Texas right now, you can't even get those guys on the phone. It's insane. So, well, I would think as friend. an independent contractor that you'd be able to apply for a PPP loan potentially. Yeah, you can't get that either because at least here in Texas, the money's gone. Yeah, well, no, the the, the money is gone everywhere. But uh, I I just saw today that it, Congress has approved another allotment for that, so it's worthwhile going to your bank and and seeing if you can figure that out. I don't know how you pay yourself, whether you pay yourself up. There, there, there's ways to make a calculation and it's open for independent contractors. And so you could go back and look at three years of history and probably put together a 12 month average and at least get that kind of forgivable loan that'll help kind of bridge your summer. And I, I highly recommend going after it, especially because you've paid into the system for a long time and you deserve it more than the Ruth's Chris of the world and the, you know, the multi-million dollar businesses that are getting millions of dollars. You know, when they said small business, it can be up, up to 10 million. I was like, how is that a small business? What, I just don't understand. Franchises because the franchises have only a certain amount of employees and that's how they get away with it. Yeah. Yeah. Loopholes. Close yeah. Loopholes. It's just crazy. I mean, I have a fr- friends here that they're a married couple and they own a salon and I mean, they're, they're okay. They're set aside. You know, they have some money in savings, but you know, they've been trying and they're trying to get their, they've at least got their landlord for their business. Now they're not paying the full rent. They're just paying the monthly triple net fees on the property. So there's that. It's just crazy. You know, they just, they can't, they can't get through and they're just having a hard time. And I mean, they're fine. Like I said, they've got a savings account, but I just, I look at these other people like, bartender friends and everything else. And a couple of my service industry friends, I mean, I just saw one of them at Home Depot. I mean, she's a greeter at Home Depot now. And I was like, hey, how you doing? She's like, you know what? I actually enjoying this. I'm making 45 hours a week and you get a bonus when you hit 40 hours, they give you a hundred dollar bonus. And then you get uh, crazy overtime pay because it's considered hazard pay at that point. So, I mean, you, you just got to adapt, I guess. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we're all going to survive. I think industries are going to change but hopefully for the good, right? And I just hope it doesn't last too long, that's all. It's going to be hard on a lot of folks. I, I believe I believe in uh, the American economy, and I, I believe in American people, and I think that uh, we'll, we'll find a way. You should run for office. That was a very politician. <laughs> you ever thought no, about I mean, it? I do have a I do have a deep pride of my country and my fellow American citizens, and I I, I believe 
I hate, I, you know, I'm not a soapbox. I don't believe in American exceptionalism that we're greater or anything else, but I just know that we're, we're made up of a lot of good people and, and people will figure out a way. And, and you're actually things like what you said, Jimmy, about what you're doing to pay it forward and helping out with this, that, and the other, there's more of that happening. And, and that, that ties into people going out and walking with their kids and, and building more of a community because communities look out for one another. And, and I think maybe that'll, that'll bring us back to the way, if you want to call it the good old days, but the way things could used to be more sociable and not just on your computers and hiding in your house. Yeah. I mean, a bit of a reset button, if you will, like I said earlier, when we started the call, just seeing neighbors that I didn't even know that I had and, you know, just the you know, people waving at you when you're walking down the street and a lot more people out in their yard doing yard work and whatnot and people just being more social and not so into their phones. And I mean, I've, I've always been the same way, like just, you know, paying attention to your phone and just kind of doing your own thing and just being more conversational with people, I guess, when you are out and about. I mean, even I'm not out much, but, you know, my trips to the grocery store and whatnot, it's just the conversations that you end up engaging in albeit brief. I mean, it's still, you know, it's, it's just sort of life slowed down, if you will. Yeah. So you may not believe this, but I, cause I'm, I'm usually a pretty reserved person, but when, when, when Cadence and I bought this house uh, a couple of years ago, I said, this is kind of a, a funny mantra, but I said, I am going to neighbor it the fuck up. I'm going to find out who all my neighbors are. I'm going to meet them, get their names, write it down, remember it when I see them, see them, see them by their name, talk to them even if it was uncomfortable for him. And I, I did that a whole bunch and I know a bunch of my neighbors now, which is nice. And we're, we're in a nice enough neighborhood to be able to do that. But when this thing is lifted, I've already, I've played around with the idea of, of doing a block party for my neighborhood and closing down the street in front of our house and, and just doing a massive like uh, low country boil or something like that, do some kind of some potluck type thing and do an actual block party and then maybe it'll turn into an annual thing. And I, I think I want to do that. That sounds like fun. You should. You should work yeah. on that. Yeah. Well, been, let I've us know if you need any event people. I, we know a few <laughs> yeah. people that can help. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I know a guy fun. that sometimes flies to Reno and does cooking for parties. Yeah. So I, 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 it's one thing that when this thing gets lifted, I, I live in a, a good enough neighborhood that you could close our street and it wouldn't, people would still be able to access all of the houses basically just because of the way the, the streets are laid out and i just think it would be super fun to invite a bunch of people and have a massive black block party i you know what i'm just going to go ahead and put that on my calendar with an asterisk yeah that sounds amazing and i want it to get out of hand i want to you know i want to i want kids playing i want neighbors getting drunk and having to go home early because they had too much and all that kind of fun stuff i'm also going to get the cops to come <laughs> I'm gonna get you a T-shirt that says "I'm neighboring it the f up." Yes, <laughs> it still makes fun of me for saying that. <laughs> I'm not really that. I don't want to say I'm not friendly, but I'm not. I'm usually not that uh, outgoing, shall we say? But I wanted to know my neighbors. Well, I mean that's 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 an agenda right there. I mean that. For you to say, all right, when you move in, like, all right, I'm going to meet the neighbors. I'm going to remember their names. I'm going to, I'm going to go after this. Like, that's, that's pretty awesome. Well, we bought this house thinking this is the house that we're going to grow old in. And so why wouldn't you want to know who your neighbors are? Agreed. 
Agreed. That's awesome. And again, that's one of those things that's kind of a lost art these days as well. Like everyone's just kind of enveloped in their world. Yeah. You know, my sister lives in Sacramento and she's on kind of a dead end street that kind of splinters off, but she has that. Every time I go there, I mean, I've even developed relationships with some of her neighbors just because I, you know, go there and visit and I know them. And it's, it's one of the coolest things ever. And it's just, that it's, it's something that doesn't happen anymore. And it should. Well, let's turn the tide on that moving forward. Take that coronavirus. I'm getting to know my neighbors. Um, So running short on some time here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about where people can find out more about States and Kingdom and what you guys have up and coming in the future on the calendar. Uh, It's gratuitous plug time. Sell us on the company, sir. Well, we're we're operations company, a production company that can uh, take people's ideas and kind of bring them to life, manage their budgets, do their permits, uh, really kind of pull off just about anything. And uh, you can find us on uh, statesandkingdom.com. Neither Tess nor I maintain our our, uh, social media channels too much, or you can find us at at statesandkingdom for Instagram. We don't update it very often. Uh, we kind of like to let our work speak for itself, but you can find us through those two two sites. And then, as I mentioned before, we're we're working on a few projects for the fall, some uh, video game events for the Blast Pro series, uh, and then hopefully another iteration of Red Bull Straight Rhythm coming up in October. It'll be the seventh year of that event for Red Bull, which is super exciting, and. Uh, possibly a little bit of, of racing. I can't say what type of racing. It should be coming out in the next couple of months, but we're going to do some, some fall racing with some, some motors, which is, should be pretty cool. And then uh, we've got a couple of other things under development that uh, we're trying to get teed up to be ready for, for when this thing lifts. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's just kind of us. We, we, we love doing events, and we love working with good people. And so we're always willing to... Uh, talk about people's ideas and see how we can bring them to life. Well, there you go. For anybody out there interested in hiring them, it's also the cleanest, most organized event tool trailer you will ever see in the history of events. Just saying. (laughs) Thank you. And it even comes with a tool manager that checks out radio batteries and everything else. So there's that. Yeah. Well, sir, it was a pleasure to hear your voice. It's been a while. Glad yeah, to hear things I, are going well out really, there in 775. I really enjoyed this. It was nice talking to you all. And, and uh, I wasn't sure what it was going to be, but it was it was neat thinking about some old things and just thinking about all the stuff that we've done. Well, guess cool. what? Up until 10 days ago, the three of us weren't sure what the hell this was going to be either. And we literally just sat here one day and Angela hit record and we just sort of made this happen. So here we are. Yeah. Well, I, I hope it turns into something for you. It's a, it's kind of a it's a neat and ambitious project, and I, I can't wait to hear other people's stories. Well, uh, it just I think the first one just went up on the website today or yesterday. I know Angela sent us a link, and uh, like Jules said earlier, I mean it's been cool. Like, I mean people that we know and work with all the time. Like I learned stuff about every one of these. I've learned something that I did not know. Like I had no idea that Jamie wanted to be a broadcast journalist. That struck me. I was like, wow, really? Wow. Known that woman forever. And that that would never even be on my radar. Mm Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. Well, I miss you guys. If 
I can get these two to start telling some stories, I kind of we kind of dabbled in that the other day. I got each, I got even got Jules to tell a story. It was awesome. Well, maybe at the end of if you do about fifteen of them, you just take a little bit of outtakes from each one, and they'll have a few stories that you can patch together, and that'll be your interview with the. Two normally, when I get her going on a story topic, she'll say, "No, no, you tell it, you tell it better." But I got her to. She went all. <laughs> she went all out the other day. All right. I was very impressed. We're gonna we're gonna turn her into an announcer before this is all over with Eric. I love it. And then Jules can be doing the crowd checks. Yes. <laughs> well, I can't wait to see you guys. Yes. Uh it's been too long and hopefully it's not October by the time that all happens. Then again, who knows? Maybe I'll be at uh, Tessa's house sanding uh nail holes and door trim. Block party. Yeah, Block yeah, party. Block That's party. we'll see at block party for sure. Hi, man. Sounds great. There okay. we go. Awesome.